to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm your host, Charles Peterson, and I'm sitting here with my great friends and great co-hosts, Dr. Liam Johnson and Rick Lee. And today we are joined by Dr. Stuart Motha, and we're going to talk about the rights of nature. But before we get into that, Rick, let's get your drink order and let's get a rant or a rave. What are you doing for us today? I will have a dark and stormy. Today, for a change of pace, I am going to be ranting about Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. (laughs) (laughs) This week in particular, I am ranting about his plan to allow veterans to teach in Florida public schools if they only have been honorably or medically discharged and have 60 hours of university education. (laughs) That's half a degree, people. That's half a degree. (laughs) And just further, I'm a little bit worried that this is part of the Republican Party's plan to ultimately privatize all education. So screw you, Ron DeSantis, yet again. (laughs) So this week, we're really honored to be joined by Professor Stuart Motha of the Department of Law at Birkbeck, University of London. Stuart works both in law and philosophy and really just at the intersection of law and philosophy. He's written extensively on topics like sovereignty, constitutional law, post-colonial law, the law as related to indigenous peoples, and lately he's turned his attention, as we'll see today, to questions relating to the environment. He's the author of the book Archiving Sovereignty, Law, History, Violence, and he's also the creator and the host of another podcast, Countersign, which I highly recommend to you all. Stuart, welcome and thanks for joining us. And Noel wants to know what you're drinking and we want to know, are you ranting or raving? Well, thanks very much, Rick. It's great to be joining you. I'm going to have a Campari spritz, please. Mm, nice. It's a warm summer here, all too warm, and it's about time of the day to have a drink. <laughs> I'm going to be raving, actually, in a way that's connected with what we're going to be talking about. I'm raving about Saturday Night Sean, which is an episode of Sean the Sheep. <laughs> Do you know about Sean the Sheep? No. I do not. No, okay, but tell so us more. It's a children's cartoon where the animals on the farm ridicule and have a life beyond what the farmer can imagine they're having. And in this particular episode, they set up a Saturday night disco and have a great party underneath the nose of the farmer. So while I was preparing for this podcast, and I usually find myself procrastinating in the process, I watched an episode (laughs) of Shaun the Sheep. I've got to rave about that. This is what scholars do. Great. All right, Lee, what are you drinking? And do we get a rant from you or a rave from you? Today, I'm just going to have two fingers of Buffalo Trace with a rock in it. And today, I am raving. And I'm raving about Gen Z slang. 
Now, it's hard to talk about slang of the younger generations without just sounding like an old fart who's trying to sound young, but they've got some really great phrases, and in particular, I want to rave about this phrase, say less. (laughs) I wish to God I had that phrase for most of my life, because it is so appropriate, and it's so flexible, and there's so many instances in which I really want to say to people, say less. And so I'm sorry to the whole generation. I apologize. I'm going to start using it. And just don't laugh at me, please. <laughs> Charles, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I am going to go nice and mellow with two or three fingers of Mount Gay Silver. I think that'll get me where I want to go tonight. <laughs> I am raving about the unimaginable genius of Curtis Mayfield. Here, here. For some reason, something just hit me. And I said, you know what? I need to hear some Curtis Mayfield. And I pulled up his first solo album, Curtis, which is very nice. It's got some great classics on it. But then I had to dig into that 1972 masterpiece, his soundtrack for Superfly. And uh. I just thought, this is a perfect album with Little Child and then Pusher Man. And then the third smack in the face with Freddy's Dead. Oh, my God. His song, Give Me Your Love, that's ephemeral. It's gossamer. Yeah in his beauty. And so I just thought, how are we not praising Curtis Mayfield every day? How is there not a national holiday? How are there not parades <laughs> in this artist's name? So I am completely raving about the unparalleled genius of Curtis Mayfield. So Rick, what are we talking about today? In the past, we've broached questions concerning citizenship for non-humans. We've broached legal questions about who counts as a legal person. And we've talked about climate change quite a bit only in relation to other topics. And it turns out that about a month ago, I was at a conference with Stuart, and Stuart gave this really excellent paper talking about the rights of nature and more particularly about how we currently have the wrong philosophical framework to appropriately address questions of our current global climate crisis. And so I thought this would be a perfect topic for us to talk about. Lee, this will warm the cockles of your cockles. He seems to be a kind of Derridian, and we may hear more about that as we go on. And so this week, we're going to be talking about the rights of nature, and we're really lucky to have Stuart with us talking about this topic. Were you giving us the thumbs up, Stuart, for having the wrong title? Uh, No. (laughs) Way to fuck it up, guys. Good job. It's the wrong title for the right reasons. All right. In your paper that I heard you give at the conference, and Stuart was generous enough to share it with my co-hosts and me, you talk about how the issue of legal personhood, particularly in relation to things like mountains or rivers or even ecosystems, might be the wrong approach. But before we get to that wrongness, could you explain for like a legal dummy, maybe me, what legal person is, and how does it function currently in legal systems, at least the ones you're familiar with? Thanks, Rick. And it's great to be here talking to you about this. So just to go back to the basics, the notion of the person has its etymological root in the Greek term prosopon and the Latin term persona. And they're both 
convey the sense of a mask. So the notion of a person involves having a mask that distinguishes between what's behind the mask and what's in front of the mask. And in a sense, the persona embodies a sort of character, if you like. Mm. And what legal personality involves is the allocation of a particular persona character to the natural person, so a human, for example, or in fact, something like corporation, which is also commonly regarded as a legal person. So there's both a duality and a duplicity to the notion of person and persona. And someone who's written in really interesting ways about this is Roberto Esposito. Mm -hmm. And he talks about this notion of duplicity in particular. So, of course, if you're a character actor in ancient Greece... The wearing of a mask enabled a variety of alternative realities to be conceived mm. by your audience. Well, it so happens that a whole range of alternative realities become possible when the category of legal personhood is bestowed on those other than legal persons. Of course, we cannot take for granted that human beings are allocated the category of person. In fact, for many centuries, much of the world's population did not have this status. And so much political struggle was undertaken to precisely gain this quality of being a person. So we should neither be dismissive of it, nor should we see it as a neutral phenomenon. I think it's really helpful to talk about personhood in relation to the persona because it helps us understand how there's an entire conceptual framework that's involved in fabricating this mask that we put on to things or entities. Just as a follow-up, I just wanted to ask you really quickly, what do you see as the significant difference between legal personhood and moral personhood? That's a really interesting question. That's not actually a distinction that I've thought about. What do you mean exactly by moral personhood? One way that we consider whether or not other things are worthy of our moral consideration is if we have responsibilities to them, moral responsibilities to them, or if they have moral responsibilities to us. That is to say, it's built into a kind of conceptual framework of, among other things, credit and blame. Mm -hmm. That's also, of course, an aspect of legal personhood. But as we all know, credit and blame work differently in the moral universe than they do in the legal universe. Granting some entity legal personhood is going to come with different kinds of rights and responsibilities than granting someone or some entity moral personhood. And I'm wondering, just before we even get into talking about nature, what are those yeah. differences? I think the term that I would use and the one used in law is one of a fiduciary duty. So when you mm. have a obligation to other entities, and in fact, it's often between adults and children, or if you're a trustee and you have obligations to members or beneficiaries of the trust, the relationship is characterized as a fiduciary one, and the law regulates what's expected of a person who has fiduciary responsibilities. So I think that's what resonates for me when I think about moral personhood, that there is a set of obligations and particular expectations that the law has of the person who has these kinds of responsibilities. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on Lee's question in terms of that distinction. And Stuart, you went right where I wanted to go with that, which is if there isn't a framework of accountability, right, in terms of responsibility, then is there really a distinction between 
this question of the moral personhood, because if you do imbue something with certain moral values and you feel responsible for them without having mechanisms of accountability and obligation that can be enforced, recognized, observed, imposed, then doesn't it render it meaningless? Mm -hmm. if you don't have those mechanisms to enforce that sense of obligation and responsibility. I suppose so, but perhaps this is where the question of legal personhood comes into play, because legal personhood becomes the device that does the work of conveying that other entity into the realm of calculation, responsibility, accountability, whereby legal systems and other institutions can administer the relationship that is involved. So in a sense, when you say a sort of moral responsibility or moral person, I take you to be invoking the sense in which we have responsibilities, potential responsibilities and obligations beyond natural persons. How do we bring that wider realm of responsibility within a legal calculation, if you like, or legal cognizance? And I think that's what takes us to the heart of the problem of the legal person. Well, in all of this, whether we look at a moral person or a legal person, we've been using this language of responsibility and obligation. And that seems to entail that we're able to pick this out as an individual, in some sense of individual. And as soon as I connect something like personhood, even legal personhood, back with some sense of individuality, I'm wondering if all of this is based on some kind of modern liberal notion of an individual and then along with that would come something like rights and responsibilities and maybe even agency. But I'm wondering, am I right in hearing that in order for something to be a legal person, in some sense, it has to be understood as an individual? Well, I think a lot of this has the tenets of modern liberal philosophy and political arrangements. But let's not forget that the law in relation to legal personhood has very strong roots in the Roman law system. Mm. And many of the scholars who are talking about legal personhood talk about it as a productive functional tool are often scholars of Roman law. And in Roman law, they use examples that, you know, I sometimes feel uncomfortable reading because they involve the capacity for a slave to, for example, execute contracts on behalf of their master. So a slave could, for the purposes of doing business and trading, have a bifurcated personality. Mm. On the one hand, they were a chattel. On the other hand, they had the capacity to execute contracts and so on. And there are kind of complicated permutations of that. Similarly, Sadia Hartman's wonderful work makes the point, for example, in Scenes of Subjection, how within slave law, you could be, on the one hand, a slave, a chattel, somebody's property. And on the other hand, you could be held legally responsible for the homicide of your abuser or rapist. And so this capacity of the law to use legal personality in these variegated ways is one that some scholars see as a benefit of legal personality. And for me, it is something that I can only ever read through a history of slavery and colonialism. So I think that's something that's very important to bear in mind. And some of the really influential literature, I'm thinking here of Christopher Stone's wonderful article, Should Trees Have Standing? 
that was published in the Southern California Law Review in 1972, where many of the examples and analogies which are brought out in the argument as to why trees and other natural phenomena should have standing, that is the capacity to, to sue in their own name in court, are analogies in relation to slavery. So there is an analogy between nature and the status of being a slave that is deeply within the literature, on the one hand, as a set of aesthetic formations, as a set of imaginaries, and I think is one that we should be conscious of when we deploy notions of legal personhood as a panacea to various problems. I'm glad that you brought up the question of standing, because often when I'm trying to describe to my students some of the differences between legal personality and moral personality, one of the things that I'll point to is that the most important thing for legal personhood is that you can demonstrate standing and that you can be punished. And it does seem to me that these are the gates of legal personhood, that you can demonstrate that, and I might want to add here provisionally, that you can autonomously demonstrate that you have an interest or that a harm has been done to you and you can make a case for yourself. And secondly, that you can be punished for some obligations that you have failed to fulfill. Whereas I think, for example, in moral personhood, the gates are really more about harm and benefit. So have I done someone harm or have I done someone a benefit? And I think there are instances in which we can recognize the legal relationship between two legal persons, for example, in a marriage, and not punish many of the harms that may be done in that legal relationship. So, for example, infidelity is not punished by the law. Not any longer. (laughs) There's a long history of punishing infidelity. Progress, (laughs) yes. (laughs) So at any rate, you see what I'm Mm -hmm. saying. And I'm glad that you brought up this really great essay, Does a Tree Have Standing? I'm wondering how that challenge of demonstrating the capacity for legal standing for entities who we do not recognize as having what we might call a parallel category of moral standing, right, that we cannot communicate with, that cannot express, for example, their desires, obligations, needs and wants to us. How do you confront that challenge? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. And of course, a lot of ecological eggs are in this basket. (laughs) (laughs) So Lake Mary Jane in Florida is in court as we speak, or has already made application to have their rights and interests as a lake and its surrounding areas protected from development. The application has been lodged in court in their own name, in the name of Mary Jane. And what it invokes is the current U.S. Supreme Court authority, or what's at stake is the current U.S. Supreme Court authority in Sierra Club versus Morton, which is a case decided in 1972, which is a terrific legal contest between Sierra Club and the Disney organization. Mm. Morton was a federal employee who was responsible for the building of a road. And what was at stake in this case was whether Sierra Club could bring an application on behalf of the Sequoia National Park that was under threat by the Disney Corporation plans. Now, ultimately, the matter was settled by political activism and not by the courts. But the decision is important because in the majority judgment, the court held that an injured party would have to come to court in their own name 
the injured mm. party would right. have to be before the court. And so even though Sierra Club could show that as a group of people interested in partaking in nature, in appreciating the aesthetic beauty of nature, they had an interest that wasn't sufficient to establish standing in court. Mm. However, Justice Douglas, who had received a draft copy of Christopher Stone's article, invoked it to argue that the coyote and the bear and the woodpecker and all of nature ought to be able to come before the court and have their standing recognized. Wow. And this is a matter to connect also to your question that comes up in questions around what's called representative standing. So in the UK jurisdiction, Greenpeace is an organization that has quite successfully intervened in environmental cases or cases concerning pollution, etc., and their standing has been recognized. But overall, my argument about this is that their standing is recognized partly because they're a competent litigant. In other words, they're not likely to waste the time of the court. They have the resources to employ suitably qualified physicists and other experts who could mount arguments. The court can hear these arguments but that doesn't necessarily mean that the court will grant a remedy that is sought by mm. Greenpeace. So what gets resolved there actually is a vindication of the rule of law. The rule of law can say, hey, look, environmentalists or other campaigners have the right to come to the court. They can have their case heard and we resolve the matter. That connects to Rick's earlier point about a liberal legal system and how a liberal legal system functions. Indeed, the overall process of recognition offered by liberalism is to have a seat at a pretty blood-soaked table. Mm -hmm. You can come, you can say your piece, and it can still be business as usual. And of course, that's the great danger of having categories of legal personality recognized in this way. To use another example, in the case of the Wanganui River in New Zealand, this is an instance that is often quoted because the legal personality of the Wanganui River and its surroundings, which has been very significant to the local Maori population, has been recognized by legislation. So an act of parliament has granted this status of legal personality to the Wanganui River and surroundings. But of course, the interests of the river is represented by effectively a sort of committee. Of course, this is partly the limits of a anthropocentric legal system and its forms of recognition, and there may not be other ways around it. I can hear a thousand corporate lawyers <laughs> scrambling to right. write the article right. that's titled, How Do I Depose a River? Right. How do I depose a park? How do I depose a lake? How do I enter a contract with a river? Exactly. A, a park. And this brings in the question of agency. Mm. So a great many of the legal forms of recognition of indigenous rights, of so-called rights of nature, actually involve oiling of the tracks for appropriation and mining operations to continue. So how is it going to be the case that corporations can continue to do business while demonstrating that they have taken into account the interests of indigenous communities or the putative interests of the natural formations on which they intervene? Well, and this goes back, Stuart, to the word you raised early on in our conversation, namely duplicity. I'm now seeing that this duplicity is also a double-edged sword in that, on the one hand, legal personhood or personality is what is required in order for you to be recognized by the law, by the courts. 
But that recognition is not all unicorns and rainbows. That recognition <laughs> could be we recognize you in order to now come and trample your lands or take your resources and so on. And then there's a second duplicity in that when you use the word anthropomorphism, I suddenly realized the depth of the metaphysical morass that legal personhood or legal personality raises. Because once an entity is recognized as a legal person, that means in some ways it's just like us. That recognition is a way of humanizing it. And now to draw this circle all the way around, this goes back to Lee's point about, well, what if those things can't communicate with us? What if those things have interests that we can't even begin to comprehend? What if those things have desires that we can't even recognize as desires? Or represent. Or even represent. And so I'm beginning now to see the tremendous metaphysical swamp that is created by this seemingly innocent, on the face of it, notion of, oh, I recognize you as a person for legal purposes. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email a audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So continuing on with this idea of duplicity, and it also seems to me that there's a third level of duplicity in going back to the application of an anthropomorphic sensibility in terms of legal personhood, that to apply it to these other entities, beings within nature, one, by bestowing this type of personhood, in a sense, creates a space for a degradation as opposed to elevation or transcendent sense of mm -hmm. this entity or this phenomenon. So if you're from a certain spiritual tradition, the river has certain qualities. Mm -hmm. And therefore, because of those qualities, the river cannot be corrupted, dismissed, disrupted in certain ways. But if you grant personhood, then I can treat it like shit like I treat other people like shit. <laughs> I can enter into competitive relations with it, exploitative mm -hmm. contract relations with it. Charles, that's absolutely spot on. What I think it brings us to as a very important distinction between facts and norms. And in these modes of recognition, when legal personality is used as a device to bring in these other interests, what we see happening is that a certain facticity is brought within the calculation of legal and political systems. They become entities that can be conceived of better. They can be taken into account but they're always hierarchically diminished mm. and they're subordinate to the law that operates upon them. And this has often been the way in which indigenous law, other spiritual systems are cognized by the state's dominant legal system. So it will bring in a whole variety of cosmological orders. It is capable of doing that. 
but it will do so with a view to dominating it. That seems to be what happened in the Mabo case in Australia, correct? That's absolutely right. So the Mabo case is a terrific example of this, a form of recognition by a colonial legal system that takes place 204 years after the European invasion of the territory now called Australia. And Australian courts recognize a form of native title, which exists in accordance with indigenous law and custom. And this was what was articulated by the Australian courts drawing on US cases as well as Canadian jurisprudence. But the incidence of native title and the extent of native title was one that was going to be regulated by the Australian legal system. And the conditions they set for that became conditions that were evidenced by anthropologists, by historians, by indigenous people themselves, but of course, always with the proviso that what were called skeletal doctrines of tenure the fundamental system of land law in the Australian legal system would not be disturbed. Right. So there is a playing out of this relationship between fact and law and this dominant relationship in the Mabo case. And also, just to echo what I think Charles was getting at, there's a way in which, you know, <laughs> being granted legal personhood can be the worst possible thing to happen because, as Charles said, it just allows you to be legally exploited, <laughs> not just morally exploited. <laughs> Absolutely. But Stuart, this is what I find sort of interesting about the position in which you sit, is that here you express, and correct me if I'm wrong, I hear a certain kind of frustration about the political, ethical, and maybe the way in which the law can't open on to justice in a broader sense. And yet you're a lawyer and you operate within this system, you confront it all the time. And so I'm wondering, is your challenge here both on the one hand, we have to do something, let's say, administratively, we have to do something jurisprudentially, but on the other hand, we need to rethink our theoretical understanding of the law. Absolutely. And I would just grab hold of one of the things you said, which is that somehow there is a limit to doing justice within the law. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. Ah. So I think there are moments when lawyers and judges themselves expose their vulnerability. They expose the great lacunae, the great gap in their thinking. And when there is honest reasoning taking place, that is there. It was there in Immanuel Kant's Metaphysics of Morals when he says, a civil community must not inquire into the origin of the law because that will bring about a breakdown of peace, because what stands behind <laughs> the origin of law is violence. So we right. must proceed mm -hmm. as if. And a whole generation of Kantian thinkers, Hans Weinger, for example, in the 19th century, writing the book, The Philosophy of As If, and Hans Kelsen's work on the Grundnorm, all of this is built on the edifice of fiction. So there are moments when legal philosophers and jurisprudential thinkers admit the lacunae. Chief Justice Marshall in 1821, in the case of Johnson versus McIntosh, says that it would be an extravagant pretension, that is his phrase, to convert the doctrine of discovery into conquest. There was no conquest, and nor could there be a discovered land, of course, because there was a population with natural rights to property. Mm. So there are those moments, I think, when justice forces its way to the top of the bench, to use the legal metaphor. And I think those are moments that we as critical lawyers and thinkers need to grab a hold of. 
But the problem there really goes to the heart of particularly the late Derrida's concerns wrapped around terms he would use like the operatic, the incalculable, the autoimmune, the autoimmune, the infinite task of hospitality, and so on. Namely, perhaps anything worthy of the name justice will have to operate with a certain kind of incalculability. The very operation of calculation is already to move toward injustice. And then I'm wondering, doesn't the legal system operate almost entirely on the basis of calculation? How much are you responsible? How much do you owe? How do we compensate for the exact suffering you've had? How many years in prison does this crime entail? And that's where I was going when I said that it seems as if as long as we think about law only in the sense of the positive law, then we're going to be operating within a certain notion of calculability. I think calculability is unavoidable because law and justice, as Derrida put it in the wonderful essay, The Force of Law, also requires a decision. To not decide would be deeply unjust. So you're faced with a conundrum where you must tarry with the incalculable. You must expose yourself to everything that must be taken into account while realizing that everything cannot be taken into account. And that's what Derrida referred to as the madness of the decision. So a truly just judge will expose themselves to this madness and know, I think, that there's only so far that they can go, that they have to make a decision, that their decision has to be in accordance with previous laws or forms of authorization, such as legislation, but not in a slavish way, because the judge is not an automaton. And a judge who is an automaton would not be engaged in the task of doing justice. On the other hand, because you cannot grasp the incalculable, the decision you made is subject to deconstruction. And that is why he made this very controversial statement, deconstruction is justice. The deconstructability of what has been decided, the fact that today's decision is the future anterior of another moment in time when a entity or a person such as Mary Jane will come back to the Supreme Court possibly perhaps a less friendly and able Supreme Court today. You think? <laughs> <laughs> but one that will be tested again and again. And I think that is part of the possibility of political change through the law. But of course, and I hope we come to talking about this, it is not the only way to bring about political and juridical change, and we know that well. I really liked about your earlier explanation, Stuart, is that you pointed out that any time a decision is made, because all decisions are incalculable, or all decisions not made by automatons are incalculable, <laughs> those decisions themselves open up remainders, margins, lacuna in our own understanding of the thing about which we are deciding. 
And I think that we've seen this a lot in the law. And you pointed out a few examples. I think that in the United States, we're over the next 10 years or so going to increasingly see how much the decision of Citizens United, which granted corporations legal personhood, is going to open up more and more lacuna, especially as the individual states in the United States become more and more anti-union, anti-worker, anti-community representation. So I think that that is definitely true. What I'm wondering is, at what point do we have to say the lacuna, the margins, the remainders that have been opened up here are forcing us to entirely rethink our decision-making processes and the concepts upon which our decisions are so-called calculated? And where do we move from here? What are the new concepts we need? Well, I'm not sure we need entirely new concepts. I mean, let's be frank. The monster in the room is capitalism. Its primary tool is a psychopathic entity called the corporation. But the corporation in its legal form is not a fait accompli. It is not set in stone and the corporation can be dealt with differently. So I think that's one of the primary frontiers that the sense that profit motive and the manner in which the directors and shareholders of corporations use the ruse, the facade of corporate personality to not take responsibility for the actions of corporations. I think this is something that can be brought to an end with stronger state intervention. And I think that is the platform on which much political struggle and law reform can take place. So it's not something that we're incapable of. And in that sense, I think we ought not to over mystify or make the task seem greater than what it is. I think the state of the current climate, the mass extinctions that are taking place and the horrendous events that have already happened but will also most certainly take place in the future will be catalysts for very significant change to take place and I remain optimistic about that. But if I could just push back for a second because I agree with you that corporations use their legal personality as a way of avoiding responsibility. They also use the ruse of legal personhood as a way of making their exploitation easier. And so I can imagine many instances in which it would be beneficial to corporations to see, for example, entities, natural entities, granted legal personhood because they would be easier to exploit. Yes, absolutely. And I think we've seen instances of that already where legal recognition is a platform as I was saying earlier, for more appropriation to take place. And I think we need to be cognizant of that in political demands and in law reform. There's no perfect playbook, and I think there will be tensions and contradictions along the way. I think the other thing I want to add here is the capacity for us to change ourselves. So it's not only the corporation, because that's another way in which the mask is used, because we may be benefiting Mm. ourselves from the mask. Now, let me give you another example, which arises out of the conference Rick and I attended together recently. I proposed, along with some other friends, that it would be a sensible idea, given the climate catastrophes, that we start consuming less meat. And this was an instance where the wonderful meals that our Italian friends would prepare (laughs) (laughs) often involved meat at every meal of the day. Mm -hmm. So we were not proposing that we entirely cut out meat because... You know, there are people who are attached to flesh eating, and I recognize their (laughs) proclivities. 
I was saying, let's reduce the level of consumption. Now, I gather this is under consideration. And I have to say, there were sort of ways of dealing with an uncomfortable proposal that came out in this lovely, utterly congenial context. And the proposal was labeled, and I quote, vegetarianism in one of the discussions. <laughs> so it puts an ideological twist, as it should. Mm -hmm. But of course, mm -hmm. what we also need to do is recognize that what we're talking about is carnivorism. Mm -hmm. And let's then have a conversation about carnivorism and vegetarianism. And I mention this because I think there is a shift in consciousness that has to take place where in, I would say, 30 years time, the regular eating of meat would be as abhorrent as racism or homophobia or sexism is today. Or driving cars. Or driving cars, absolutely. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's go with that. I mean, I think that's the sort of way in which we can have a conversation about this. And it's intriguing because in today's Guardian newspaper headline, that's one of the key liberal newspapers in the UK, the headline is of the conservative government lead who has proposed that there should at least be a 30% reduction in the eating of meat. And that would help to meet the requirements for reducing greenhouse gases. So I think these are the kinds of conversations that we will need to have in order to transform the terrain. Well, I'll be damned. Donald Trump was right. They do want to take your burger. <laughs> 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 On that point, Stuart, I want to go back a little bit to this incalculability mm -hmm. and maybe draw this to another theme in your thinking about nature in relation to the law and maybe outside the law. And that is what the law does. We've used the word decision, and it seems to me that you can't have law without decision. The law is based on decisions, but that decision is at the same time a determination. And even Citizens United determines that corporations are such and such. And that is a kind of metaphysical determination that then is made. The problem then with the incalculable is that it seems to be operating outside of the determinations of the law. And I think this becomes more obvious when you start looking at how can law recognize nature? Because one way to characterize nature, and this goes back all the way to Aristotle, is it's the thing that does what it does just by itself. It is outside the human spheres of operation, our teleological ways in which we do something for the purpose of something and so on, that nature, one way to characterize it is that it is simply other than those determinations that belong to the law. Now, Stuart, in your essay, you use the Greek terms here about the relation between nomos and phusis, and I think that sets it up quite nicely that nature understood in this Greek sense of phusis seems at least recalcitrant if not entirely in opposition to whatever would count as nomos. If I could just follow up on that, and I saw you wince, Stuart, at the beginning of our episode when we said that it was titled The Rights of Nature, and <laughs> Rick thankfully said maybe the rights of nature is not the right term, but I think this is what Rick's question is getting at, is that we do have this Greek idea of phusis as just that which appears, and it appears without necessarily making rights demand or requiring rights obligations, rights-based obligations. I've been reading this great book by Lloyd Pratt called The Stranger's Book. 
the human of African-American literature, where he talks about the idea of humanity that you get within early 19th century African-American writers is not one based upon this sense of sameness or commonality that you get out of a sort of Eurocentric view, but it's one in recognition of difference and alterity uh-huh. as what makes the human so particular and worthy of inclusion. And we're also talking about this idea of the madness of this infinite embrace, right? And I wonder if we could begin to think about a way of judging and bringing in all of these entities and recognizing a certain type of legal personhood that recognizes the differences in rights, privileges, and obligations that each entity or category of entity may have. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds chaotic. This is great. And you guys are fantastic. And I wish we could be having conversations every day because <laughs> we could write lots of books together. My book is going to be titled, How Do You Depose a Lake? <laughs> There's a market for that (laughs) amongst corporations. (laughs) So you have to go to law school firstly. (laughs) Okay, so let's go back to the nomos-fusis distinction, particularly the strong Aristotelian distinction that Rick was invoking. And now what I try to do in my work is to crunch this distinction through two concepts, that of autonomy and heteronomy. So I would place autonomy on the side of how nomos is usually articulated. That is the sense that law or those who are within law have a capacity to give law to themselves. And that has a very strong arc from Aristotle to various notions of the Republic to early modern thinking. And on the other hand, Fusus or nature as somehow utterly other. Now, certainly pre-Aristotelian thinkers, Greek thinkers, didn't have this strong distinction. And Jean-Pierre Venant, in his extraordinary scholarship, brings out the pre-Aristotelian thinkers who had a far more dynamic and interesting understanding of the relationship between nomos and fusus. That's one thing. We ought not to take that Aristotelian distinction for granted. Yeah. Connecting with Charles's point, about the counter views of humanity and how difference and alterity could be brought in. And I think this is where the notion of heteronomy, I think, is quite fundamental. There's a wonderful essay by Jean-Luc Nancy called Church State Resistance, which was published in a small book that I edited called Democracy's Empire. And it was also published in the Journal of Law and Society. And in church-state resistance, he carries out a wonderful excavation of the terms autonomy, heteronomy, and how heteronomy works to undo autonomy. Mm -hmm. That autonomy is never autonomous. To put it in Nancy's terms, you cannot be alone being alone. Mm -hmm. The very assertion of aloneness positions you in relation to that which is either beside you or away from you. So those concepts are quite fundamental for me to use the seeming opposition. It's a putative opposition between autonomy and heteronomy to show how heteronomy undoes autonomy. So that which is other, the passions, the affects, the ungraspable is always present in the moments of autonomic calculation, even if it is that which cannot be reached as the province of the incalculable. That's the conceptual terrain in which I try to undo this strong distinction between nomos and fusus. And then, Lee, to your question about whether rights of nature is really pragmatically where we should be heading or is it the tool that we should be using? 
I think there's a pragmatic and sort of praxis-oriented dimension to this, where I would say, use everything in the arsenal against the bastards. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Right, every tool in a toolbox. (laughs) Absolutely. There is a place for imminent critique to go into the system and to, from its innards, to grab at the concepts, the practices, the functionalities that are both its strengths and its weaknesses. And that is a way in which you can hold a system to account by exposing the contradictions within what it claims it stands for. And if a corporate and commercial entity can be granted this mask, this persona, which allows it to wreak havoc on populations and the planet, then I think that is a tool that could be used by others albeit by recognizing the limits, the structures of domination that will mean that nature is within a fact law hierarchy and so forth. There are dangers, of course, that there will be a romanticization of nature that comes with this. One of the concerns that I have is that this strategy of everything's a hammer when you're trying to hit a nail is good when you're trying to hit a nail. (laughs) It's not so great when you're trying to amend a legal system that is pathologically exploitative. And I worry that using things, concepts, Mm -hmm. really, like rights, like standing and harm and punishment as attached to individuals only just retrenches those same legal forms that allow for more exploitation, allow for the most wealthy, the most privileged, those who enjoy the most rights to exploit those who do not. And so I wonder if there's any world in which you could imagine that you would say, no, we actually just need to stop arguing for for example, the rights of nature, the rights of indigenous people, the rights of artificial intelligence, right? Because all of them are dependent on fundamentally capitalist concepts that attach benefits and harms to individuals. And what we absolutely have to realize in the midst of a climate crisis, in the midst of gross income disparity in every country and globally, what we have to recognize is that we are communities, we are groups, and that rights and benefits and harms have to be attributed to groups and not individuals. I think you're absolutely right, Lee. And I think this makes me think of Walter Benjamin's wonderful essay, The Critique of Violence, and that we should use Mm -hmm. critique de gewalt and the full range of the meaning of gewalt here. That violence, which may mean legitimate force and a form of law, but it need not only mean that. And the political transformations and changes that we have seen, albeit incomplete ones in relation to colonialism and slavery, for instance, were not changes that were brought about solely by law. In fact, most of it happened through political struggle by forms of counter-violence that were not deemed legitimate when they took place. So when I think about the struggle that needs to be undertaken, that is being undertaken, I think about the Friday school strikes that have been undertaken by children, the nonviolent forms of civil disobedience that, of course, governments and states are criminalizing 
and hugely over-policing as the most fundamental platforms through which we might bring about political change. And if I can just add, when I read works of fiction that are grappling with these questions, I'm thinking of Richard Powers' overstory or Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. Mm -hmm. You see the full range of possibilities for counter-violence against the regimes that we're confronting. So I think the law provides certain tools, but there are other political strategies available as well. I was a big fan of the old anarchist line, if none obey, then none can command. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. You mentioned the case of the Wanganui River or Lake Mary Jane. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting facets of the legal question surrounding the standing of lakes or rivers, mountains, and so on, is that not only do we have them in common, but we're not entirely sure how all of these things are connected to other things. Mm Changing something about the river might actually affect something going on in Paraguay. So how can the law possibly confront an entity that we're not even sure where it begins and where it ends? We're not sure what it's capable of doing. We're not sure how it is connected to human lives, non-human lives, and even other non-living things. How can the law possibly adjudicate and confront such entities? Yeah, because that's a matter of hospitality. That's not a matter of rights. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this takes us back nicely also to the beginning, which is that we start with fundamentally a set of fictions. Law functions with fictions. One of its great fictions is the territorialization of the planet with Mm. uh, bodies of sovereign formations. So, as you say, Rick, the entities that we're talking about, rivers, indeed oceans, I mean, the idea that we distinguish between one ocean and another, well, any of us who've been to the edges of these oceans know that these are extraordinary as-ifs. The fictions are there, and fictionality is part of how legal formations function. So again, I think there's an opportunity to undo, redefine, use different fictions. So these are possibilities. And maybe I'm coming across as a a glass half full kind of person when it comes (laughs) to the law. There are ways in which our conceptualizations of river systems, the Wanganui River, for example, you know, it's not only the river, it is a whole cosmological and indeed, and this is important in the legislation, it speaks of the metaphysics not only the physical entities of the river, but the metaphysical dimension of the river for the Maori people. So I think, again, law is capable of being cognizant of these differences while absolutely recognizing that it cannot tarry with the infinite calculation that the form of commonality that Rick was describing would involve. listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, We would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. Now, back to the conversation. 
Stewart, I just wanted to follow up the previous discussion about the commonness of natural entities. Certainly, one might argue that within the context of current positive law, one way to address this would be through international law. And I'm not a lawyer, if that's not clear to you and everyone by now, but I get the sense that international law is itself a fiction. (laughs) That is, there really just is no such thing. Am I wrong about that, about international law? And then given your half glass full outlook, do you think international law would be a helpful venue to pursue questions of justice in relation to nature? I'm sympathetic to where your question's coming from, because when we look around the world and we see the proliferation of international norms, laws, treaties, what is referred to as customary international law, which arises out of practice and recognition by international courts and tribunals, etc., and then still see the fact that there is an inability to confront a tyrannical ruler like Putin or other regimes around the world, including in the UK, where we see the UK government refusing to adhere to an international court of justice judgment on the Chagos archipelago and return that archipelago to Mauritius, it's justifiable to think that international law is a fiction. However, in the context of environmental norms, it's worth bearing in mind that some of the earliest arrangements to protect what is called nature were in fact interstate agreements. And some of them involved relations between neighboring states where there was a river running through two or more countries or that there were migratory birds or animals. And therefore there was an interest on both sides to protect these entities or species. And some of the earliest forms of international environmental law were such treaties. More recently, there has been discussion and indeed moves by prominent lawyers such as Philip Sands to draft a crime that would be part of the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court in relation to ecocide. Mm. And ecocide would be Mm. something akin to genocide, but perhaps not with the problems of the legal definition of genocide, which involves a certain intentionality. So people who commit genocide don't write down that they intend to (laughs) destroy an entire nation, ethnic group, race. So it may have the character of other legal norms such as crimes against humanity, so a sort of crime against nature. So these moves are underway. But I think when it comes to international law and international norms, that's where I think my glass half full optimism starts to diminish. Maybe the glass is not as half full (laughs) or is emptier as my current drink is. (laughs) There is certainly scope for doing things through international institutions. And I think the United Nations has been entirely outspoken in relation to climate change. But again, we come back to this issue that if you look at the Intergovernmental Panel, the IPCC, and the declarations that are made in relation to commitments to reduce greenhouse gases, to stick to 1.5 degree increase in temperature globally, etc., it always excludes corporations. There's no talk of what 
the corporate sector is contributing to this. And that's one of the great flaws of international law, that its constituent elements are sovereign nation states. And so we're stuck then with that very modern, very liberal legal fiction. So speaking of Stuart's almost empty (laughs) drink, unfortunately, our bartender Noel has made last call. So while we get our last drinks, I'm going to ask Charles to call a ride for us. And I want to remind our listeners that if you have any thoughts about this topic, the rights of nature, the fictions of international law, or anything else that we've talked about in this episode, please do respond to us on Twitter. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. And also, if you love this podcast and if you listen to it, please do go and visit our Patreon page. It's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. We'd really appreciate your support. And while you're at it, don't forget that Stuart has his own podcast, which is really great and which we highly recommend. It's called Countersign. So subscribe and support that podcast as well. Stuart, thank you so much for your time and the rides on us. Thank you very much. It's been fantastic to be at the bar with you. And I hope we can have a drink again soon. Say less. (laughs) 